Hi, I'm Brian Conroy and welcome to this week's episode of the Habits Habit podcast. On this podcast, we're all about habits, what they are, why they work, why they don't work. We're aiming to inspire and empower people to change their habits and change their life. Uh, And if you think that sounds a little OTT and extravagant, well, maybe you missed last week's episode with Professor Wendy Wood, author of Good Habits, Bad Habits. Uh, And if you did, you should go and check that out because it'll blow your freaking mind. Same with this week. My guest is a double New York Times best-selling author, Nir Eyal. Uh, his first book, Hooked, really lifted the lid on how Silicon Valley creates uh, and designs and implements um, apps and programs and systems that get us hooked. Uh, and it's all to do with habits. Uh, and so is a second book, which is what we're going to chat uh, about today, Indistractable, uh, The Art of... Uh, becoming indistractable uh, and actually doing the things you say you're going to do Um, so there's some really interesting stuff here about your internal triggers about your external triggers and about what it is that you are procrastinating from Uh, you know what Nir will explain it a little bit better welcome to this week's episode here's Nir Ayal on the Habits Habit podcast one of the things I'm always interested in when I'm talking to people like yourself who get interviewed lots and lots is trying to ask questions that maybe you haven't been asked before and not just for the sake of being kooky or weird or different, but genuinely to try and maybe get answers that I've never heard before or that maybe you've never given before. When I was trying to think about that for you, the question that came to me, and I know this is a little bit odd and left of center, but if you were interviewing you, what would be the first question you would ask you? <laughs> that is a good question. I've, I've never been asked that before. <laughs> you chucked one up for yourself right there. That's a good question. It's when you spend so much time thinking about uh, a question, it's not necessarily a bad thing to reiterate. I, I think I have uh, a great deal of respect for people who find the continual curiosity in an important question. And what I find with my research is that these types of questions peel like onions. There's more and more to them. So I'm certainly not bored of talking about this topic. I think it's a really important topic because it's something that I struggle with. I have struggled with for many years. And finally, I found the answer for, I I cracked the code for finally uh, being able to do what it is I say I'm going to do. And so that's what becoming indistractable is all about. So yeah, so I don't mind reiterating some of the things I've said before. That's uh, that's no problem. (laughs) I'll tell you, actually, there's a kind of dual purpose to the first question, which is, I genuinely think just like an interview or anything else you're going to do in life, the question of where to start and how Mm. to start is a really tricky one. So reading your uh, book, what I was interested in, and the book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And we're going to go into it in a ton more detail for anyone who's just joining us. Uh, I will ask some normal questions and you will learn a lot from Nir as well. But you do say you don't have to read the book sequentially. And and that interested me for uh, a couple of reasons. But again, it's that question of how and where to start. Mm -hmm. If you were starting your book, would you start at the start? And I'll tell you where I think I would start having read it twice now. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for diving into it. That always makes for a much better interview. So thank you for taking the time to do that. I I, I think where I would start is by understanding what distraction really is, because I, I don't think I properly understood what that term 
really means. A lot of people think that the that they understand what distraction is, but then when you say what is the opposite of distraction, they tell you the wrong answer. <laughs> Most people think the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not true. That the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of, of traction is, of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from the values uh, of the person you want to become. So this is, I think, really important and an important place to start because this isn't just semantics. This really matters because what this means is that any action can be a distraction or an act of traction. What do I mean by that? That my daily routine before I wrote this book used to be waking up, going to work, sitting down at my job and saying, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to work on that thing that I've been procrastinating on. I'm not going to uh, get distracted. I'm, I'm not going to procrastinate anymore. Here I go. I'm going to get started on that big report, that big project right now. But first, let me just check email, right? First, let me just do that one quick thing on my to-do list to, to, to get that done first. And what I didn't realize is that I was succumbing to the most dangerous form of distraction, which is the kind of distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. So anything can be a distraction. Just because something feels work-related, if it's not what you plan to do with your time, it is by definition a distraction. And I think conversely, anything can be traction. So I do not agree with this these chicken little tech critics that we hear today that tell us the sky is falling and technology is hijacking your brain and it's addicting everyone. It's rubbish. It is so false and dangerous of a narrative because it disempowers people. And look, the fact of the matter is there's nothing wrong with going on social media. There's nothing wrong with playing a video game if that's what you intend to do with your time because the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So as long as you use these things on your schedule and according to your values, there's nothing wrong with it. We don't need to go on digital detoxes. We just need to know how we want to spend our time in advance. That's the difference between traction and distraction. It's one word, and that one word is forethought. That if you plan ahead, if you understand what it is you want to do with your time, that you can enjoy these technologies and get the best of them without letting them get the best of you. That, I mean, it's a very neat summary. And as, as I said, you can tell you've danced this dance before. You're very well versed on this stuff. But you've said a couple of things there that really stood out to me. And I, I don't know whether it's a skill of an author. I presume it is to just be able to distill something. And maybe it's not. Maybe I'm giving you too much credit near. It could be your editor. But to distill something down to one sentence that just you just get it. For me, one of those sentences, yours, was it can't be a distraction if you don't know what it's distracting you from. So it's this idea of focusing on the right thing. Can I tell you, I appreciated you in the past. Now I even love you more <laughs> because <laughs> this honestly was the hardest part of this book, was summarizing down the countless uh, research studies, the reams of papers that I read, the academic 
papers that I had to go through, the journals that are not meant to be read. They're meant to get someone a PhD thesis. They're not meant to actually be digested. And to boil all that down into something very practical that people could take away, that was the hardest part. And when I, the, the idea here was if people can't understand these concepts, then they can't apply them into their daily, daily life. And so a lot of the book is not new research. It's very old research, 20, 30, 40 year old research that's been stuck up in some ivory tower somewhere that most people don't understand or haven't you know, had the time to research and to look into, I should say. And so what I really wanted to do was to make this kind of advice that is one, research-backed. I, I hate the type of self-help books that you know, follow my personal recipe because it worked for me. Therefore, it's going to work for me, for you. No, I, I really need to see the studies. I want to see the peer-reviewed studies that show me that this is real. This isn't just somebody's crackpot theory. I, and two, that it needs to be practical. It needs to be something that we can all do in our own lives. And I, so I think this, this point, I think also hit me like a ton of bricks, was this concept of you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. That as much as we complain about, oh my goodness, the world is so distracting these days and Donald Trump did this and did you see this in the news and did you see this on Twitter and your boss wants this and your kids want that. At the end of the day, most people out there have no idea how they want to spend their time. If you looked at their calendar, it'd be blank. And you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. That if you have blank time, white space on your calendar, everything is a distraction. And so it's absolutely critical that we define what is traction for us in our life. And this is a very old uh, methodology. This is called making an implementation intention, which has been studied in thousands of of peer-reviewed journals, have verified that this very simple technique of simply detailing what it is you want to do with your time is way better than the conventional behavior, which is keeping a to-do list. I rally against to-do list, or I should say more specifically, running your life on a to-do list, because it's one of the worst things you can do for your productivity. If you wake up in the morning and look at your to-do list before you look at your calendar, you've already basically lost. That is such bad advice that I think people are are taking these days. And I didn't know that. I I was a a to-do list devotee every day. That's how I ran my life is looking at my to-do list. Now, to be very clear, I'm not saying that getting things out of your head and writing them down is a bad idea. Quite the opposite. You should absolutely do that. But where you do that and what you do with it is paramount. So if you start your day by looking at your to-do list, that's the wrong approach. Your best to-do list is your calendar. So that brings me neatly onto what I was going to suggest. So I asked you, where would you start? For me, I think that's the place to start because I was just thinking about this and I was like, okay, all the things I need to do in terms of figuring out what I'm motivated away from, what I'm, all the stuff in the earlier chapters in Indistractable is stuff that you need to devote some time and energy and thought to. And if I don't have that in the calendar, then I'm probably not going to do it. That is a place to start. And I think that's where most productivity books start. I think what it glosses over is the root cause of distraction. That uh, we talked about traction versus distraction, but what we didn't talk about is why we are prompted to traction or distraction. Why is it that we do things that we know we shouldn't? And why is it that despite knowing what to do, we don't just do what it is we say? How many times have we said, oh, I'm definitely gonna exercise today. I'm definitely gonna eat. I'm definitely gonna finish that big project. Whatever the case might be, why don't we just do what we know we should? And by the way, this is not a new question. 
Plato pondered this very same question 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest. This is not a new problem. It's certainly not a problem that technology created. It's not Facebook or the iPhone's fault. This has been around for a very long time. And so part of what drives us to traction and distraction is what we call external triggers. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that leads us to traction or distraction. Now, that's what most people blame. They blame the external triggers for distracting them. And, and there's a lot we can do to hack back, what I call hack back these external triggers, but they are not the root cause of distraction. That the leading cause of distraction, the number one reason we go off track is not because of things in our outside environment. It's about what is going on inside of us. <clears throat> Excuse me. External triggers are about things in our outside environment. Internal triggers is about how we feel. Internal triggers are defined as uncomfortable emotional sensations that we seek to escape from because most distraction starts from within. It's the desire to escape discomfort, boredom, loneliness, uncertainty, fatigue, anxiety. This is why we seek escape. And so the reason I started the book by understanding these internal triggers, and I say the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering those internal triggers, is because at the end of the day, that is the most powerful pull. That it doesn't matter if it's too much news, too much food, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook. You will always find something to distract you, to take you off track. Even, I have to admit with you, if you put it in your calendar, if you haven't figured out what's going on inside your own head. If you are looking to escape discomfort in an unhealthy, maladaptive manner, it will always lead you to distraction. Because distraction, procrastination, a lack of productivity, a lack of following through, it's not a character flaw, right? For the vast majority of people, there's nothing wrong with them. It's simply that we haven't learned to deal with discomfort. That's the source of the problem. Well, okay. And uh, yeah, you're right. I, I do get that. But I just wonder, it feels uncomfortable. It's hard, I guess, is what I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> and we are naturally, as people, some of us at least, tend to, to shy away from things that are hard. So maybe that's why I gravitated towards the calendar because I'm like, oh, okay, sitting down with a calendar, I can do that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll pencil yes. in time to figure out my head in my calendar. Yeah, and that's fine. There's, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's why I say you can't hop around the book. It's interesting. I've heard from different people about which part of the four steps of the indistractable model they find most challenging versus the ones that find which steps are, are easiest. And it's interesting. People have a different... Uh, a different viewpoint based on their predilection. So for some people dealing with their emotions is easy. If someone is, as a, is someone who is used to that, is comfortable with dealing with, hey, what are these sources of discomfort? How do I deal with, 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 with emotional pain in a way that's healthy and adaptive and leads me to traction rather than distraction versus you ask that same person, how about we take a few steps to plan your day? No, I can't do that. <laughs> I have to be spontaneous. I can't plan. I, I don't want to be held down. I, and, and so it's interesting. I think that might be something that depends on the individual. One thing I do agree with you, this isn't work-free, okay? I, I don't sell people snake oil solutions that say, oh, in five easy steps, 30 seconds, you can have the life you want with no work. No, everything in life that's worth having is worth fighting for. And so this does require a little bit of effort. I, I, I don't mean to, to give the impression it doesn't. It does take some work, but here's the thing. We have to do this work because the world is bifurcating into two types of people who let their time and their attention and their lives 
be controlled and manipulated by others. And then they wake up at the end of life saying, oh, why didn't I live the life I, I could have and should have? And people who say, no, I control my attention. I control my life. I am indistractable. And I think if we don't take that step, if we don't do something today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow, we'll live a life full of regret. Um, you don't really get into it in the book. And maybe it's because it's none of our business. If that's the case, tell me it's none of your business. But when you did this exercise for yourself and tried to look into what pain your distraction was trying to take you away from or what was causing that, did you find answers that you were looking for? And are you happy to or willing to share them? Was there, you know, what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to understand is, and I know it'll be different across the, the full range of human emotions and, and experience. Was it one thing? Is it 10 things? Is it like, I'm, at, I'm 40. I have a bang of, which is Irish for a sense of, a bang of a midlife crisis off me where I'm, what's life all about? What am I doing? Do I want to focus all my energy here? I'm at this, I'm at that, I'm a dad, I'm a lawyer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a whatever. And I'm wondering, am I being distracted because I can't quite figure out what it is I want to do with my life, for example? And how was that experience for you? Yeah. So for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, it's not just one big thing. It's a myriad of different questions and pain points. For me, it was specific to the distraction. So at one point in my life, I was clinically obese. And uh, I think that's that there's a lot of, par- there are many parallels between overindulging in food and overindulging in all sorts of other distractions, whether that's too much social media, too much television, too much news. There's a lot of parallels. And as much as I wanted to blame McDonald's for making me fat, that's not true. That they do are, make pretty tasty food down here. I think we could they, give them some they, of them blame. They're not bad. They're not bad. I will say those chicken nuggets get me every time. But let me tell you, that wasn't why I was overeating. I was overeating because I was eating my feelings. And many people who struggle with, with, with being overweight, in my case, obese, not just overweight, that's the real source of the problem. I was eating when I was bored. I was eating when I was lonely. I was eating when I felt ashamed for overeating. And that was the real source of the discomfort. And it wasn't until I understood that I was using food as emotional relief that I could start really doing something about the problem. And it wasn't, uh, for me, again, it wasn't a big thing in my life. It wasn't an unresolved issue. It was that I was using certain pain relievers in an unhealthy way. And so the same goes for distraction. That, for example, I talk about in the book how there was this seminal moment in my life that really made me reconsider my own relationship with distraction when I was with my daughter one afternoon And we had this beautiful day planned and we had um, this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together and uh, contained different, different games. So there was a Sudoku puzzle and make some origami and fly a paper airplane. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you my daughter's answer because I wasn't listening. I was paying attention to something on my phone and I told my daughter to just wait a quick sec because I had to do this one thing on my phone. And by the time I looked up from my screen, she was gone. She left the room because she got the message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she went to go play with some toy outside. 
And it didn't just happen with her. It would happen throughout my life in many different areas. Like, for example, when I would get to work, I would you know, say I was going to work on that big project and I'd do everything but. I would say I was going to exercise, but I wouldn't. I would do all these, I would say I was going to do all these things and then I didn't follow through. I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And so in that instance, it was really about understanding what was the source of the discomfort. I'd love to blame my work or Facebook or the iPhone for distracting me when I was with my daughter, but eh, come on, that wasn't really the reason. The real reason was that I was bored. <laughs> that there's only so much toddler time that a grown man can take before you need a break. I was going to call your daughter boring and then I thought I better not do that. He might take offense. But yeah, <laughs> as the father of three small children. Yeah. We don't like to talk about this. It's not that she's boring. It's that I was boring. Right? <laughs> I didn't find anything that was interesting for the two of us to do together. And, and by the whatever hour of playing together, I needed a break. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But instead of taking it out on her and blaming it falsely on my phone, I should have said, you know what? Daddy needs a little break. Give me a few minutes. I'm going to go to another room and I'm going to do what I need to do. And then I will tell her I'll be back at a certain time. Okay. 15, 20 minutes later. So it's really about intent. It's about understanding, wait a minute, this is what I'm looking to escape from being honest with ourselves as opposed to blaming uh, and shaming ourselves. We can be honest with, look, sometimes we need to deal with those uncomfortable sensations. The question is, it's not about not having those uncomfortable sensations. We all will have them. And it's not about feeling guilty about having them. Right now, we are so, I would say, happiness obsessed, right? Every self-help book professes to teach us the secret to happiness. How many books have happiness in the title? And it's a little bit of, of a con because you are not evolved to be perpetually happy. The human species did not evolve to always be happy all the time. That is not what we evolved to do. If you think about it from an evolutionary basis, if there was ever a tribe of homo sapiens that were contented and happy all the time, our ancestors would have killed and eaten them, right? That would not be a beneficial evolutionary trait. You want a species to be perpetually perturbed. It's exactly that type of dissatisfaction that helps us achieve in the world. It helps us invent and create and overturn despots. And that drive to achieve only comes from being dissatisfied. Now, the question is, do you escape from that dissatisfaction with distraction or do you harness it like rocket fuel to move you towards traction? So it's not about escaping these uncomfortable sensations. It's about harnessing it. It's about understanding this is part of being a human being. And instead of always looking for something to take our mind off of the discomfort, we lean into the discomfort and use it as leverage in our life. I think that um, absolutely anybody who has uh, children, <laughs> frankly, uh, will be able to relate um, to that story. And it really resonated with me. One thing I wonder if we can just explore a little bit is the habitual reaction to the boredom or the trigger. Or mm -hmm. So when you got bored, um, and I, I, I know how harsh that sounds, but when you got bored of playing with your daughter, and as I said, I completely get it, um, why was the phone what you went for? So I suppose there's a huge overlap, obviously, between your first book, Hooked, and this book to, a, to an extent that habits are really central to both in different ways. 
where mm-hmm. it's it's coming at the problem from different angles. Yeah, absolutely. I the, the the indistractable is a continuation of hooked. So if hooked is about how do we build healthy habits in people's lives using technology, indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits that don't serve us. And so it's because I am an industry insider because I understand all the ways that these technology companies get you hooked. I wrote the book hooked. I know exactly all the techniques they use. I can separate the fact from fiction. I can, I know the difference between what is hyperbole, what is fear tactics and what is real. And one of the things that is most real that I don't think I I properly appreciated when I first started along this field of research is how all of our behavior is driven by the desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, Every app you use, every action you take, every product you interact with is fundamentally driven by your behavior to, that, that is driven by your desire to escape discomfort. So it's not about carrots and sticks. We used to believe in carrots and sticks and the desire for pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but that is neurologically not true. That the way the reward system in the brain works is by constantly giving us the motivation to escape discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. If you go outside and it's too cold, the brain says, oh, this is uncomfortable. You should put on a coat. And if you walk back in, your brain says, oh, this is too hot now. The body's too hot. You should take it off. If you are hungry, you feel hunger pangs. If, and so you eat. And if you eat too much, now you feel stuff. That doesn't feel good. So you stop eating. So these are physiological responses to these uncomfortable states. And the same goes for our psychological responses, that when we feel bored, we check the news or stock prices or sports scores. If we feel lonely, we check Facebook. If we feel uncertain before we even scan our brains, we Google it. And so that is a a fundamental truth that I think carries across both books, that if we want to build healthy habits in people's lives using technology, we have to understand what is that internal trigger? What is that itch that occurs frequently enough to form a habit around, and hopefully that can become a healthy habit in people's lives, teaching them a new language, like Duolingo uses the hook model to uh, my work to, to help people learn a new language, or uh, a, a company like Fitbod that helps people get into the habit of exercise, all use these same techniques. And then on the other side, as users, if we find that we are overdoing something, not just a tech product like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but watching too much television, reading the news too much, working too much, whatever the case might be, with too much of anything, it's still the same source. It's all about this inability to deal with discomfort, which is why that's such a, a crucial step to becoming indistractable as well. I'm just going to stick with this just for one second, because I think because I think it's something particularly that any parent will be able to relate to, then maybe talking around it a little more might help explain some of the nuances of this too. So, for example, uh, and I, I had a, such a laugh when I first read Indistractable because I just bought myself a flip phone and you start your book by saying, I, I bought myself a flip phone. That didn't work. That's not the problem. I was like, OK, I can send that back. <laughs> um, incidentally, my flip phone has WhatsApp and, and a couple of other features. So it's a kind of smart, dumb phone. And I think it might have worked better than yours. But anyway, (laughs) and I suppose people will think if you take the example of your child, right, the solution here is to put down the phone or to put the phone somewhere else. But if you did that, you would still get bored and you would have done something else like turn on the news or something like that. Isn't that the kind of point that you need to look at it a little deep, more uh, deeper and less superficial than, okay, I'll just remove the phone from the equation, problem solved. 
This is why these digital detoxes and don't work for the same reason that fad diets don't work. When I was obese, I would constantly try these fad diets. Let's do 30 days, no carbs, 30 days, no fast food, 30 days, whatever. And you know what happened on day 31, right? Come back with a vengeance uh, and make up for lost time because I wasn't learning the skill associated with what do I do with the discomfort that leads me off track in the first place. And so that's why we have to start with this deeper truth that, that all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. So that must therefore mean that time management requires pain management. And that is a crucial skill that all the tips and tricks, all the gurus, productivity hacks and all that, none of that works if we don't fundamentally address this truth that time management requires pain management. There's a couple of things then in, in terms of, I'll, I'll just, for, for anyone who hasn't read the book, um, I'll, I'll just re- go through the parts of it. So part one is master your internal triggers. And that's what we're talking about here uh, in terms of the underlying root cause, if you like. Part two is make time for traction, which we'll come back to in a little bit, but that's time blocking and, and other um, things like that. Part three is hack back external triggers, which uh, is a really useful uh, practical guide to look here's some tools that you can use to make this stuff easier so you've gone through the pain of trial and error with various um, bits of technology that can help block other bits of technology effectively and and then part four prevent distraction with pacts definitely want to talk a little bit more about that and pre-commitment which we've talked about and then five six and seven are more relationship-based, how to make your workplace indistractable, how to raise indistractable children, and how to have indistractable relationships. So when we talk about time management and pain management, um, what you say is uh, at the very start, uh, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Planning ahead ensures you will follow through. Okay, so with the, the aim of the book being you'll be able to control your attention and choose your life. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be, there's still going to be people who are listening to this going, but I do plan. I do say I'm going to go for a run tomorrow morning and then tomorrow morning comes and it's raining or I'm tired or something mm-hmm. comes up and I don't do it. So mm-hmm. for, for that person who says I'm going to go running tomorrow and then doesn't, what do you say to them? This is why the indistractable model has these four parts that no one technique is going to work in isolation. It has to be in concert. Let's take the example that you just gave here of someone who says, I'm going to run and then they don't. And then you said, well, a few things came up. Okay. Uh, the first thing that came up was I didn't feel like it. Is that what you said? Uh, I think I said it was raining actually. Oh, I really, raining. Okay, I really perfect. don't like running in the rain. So maybe that's a personal reflection. Okay, perfect, perfect. So there's a wonderful quote by Poela Coelho who says, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. I think that's a wonderful illustration of this principle. If you were to summarize my entire book, it's with this mantra that you just recited, which was the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That there is no distraction that we cannot overcome if we do not plan ahead. So for example, it doesn't rain once in a lifetime. That is not that unexpected. So if we say, oops, it rained, shoot, and we go back to our room and do nothing, and then we say, I can't exercise because it rained, yeah, but we could have predicted that it rains from time to time. So can we use forethought to say, look, what's my goal here? If my goal is only to run, then that's a very narrow goal. But if my goal is 
or sorry, if my goal is to only run in the sunshine, that's a very narrow goal. And that has problems with it because it's factors outside of my control. I would like to say my goal is I would like $10 million, but that's not all in its control. I, I would like to say I want long flowing blonde hair, but that's not really in my control. I don't control my genetics. So controlling the weather is outside of my control. So that might not be a very good goal in the first place to say, I only will run when it's sunny. I will only exercise when there's sunny weather outside. If the real goal is, look, what I really want is some physical activity. Are there conditions where even if it rains outside, I can make sure I, ha I get some physical activity in my day? Of course there is. You can work out at home. You can, you can do a million different things to get some physical activity in your day, even if it's raining outside, because we plan ahead. So do we have a backup plan to say, look, my goal is to run. If it rains, I know that makes it for an uncomfortable run. Here's what I'm going to do instead, right? Forethought. Now I know what I will do instead. Then you said, okay, well, I don't feel like it. And this is the number one reason we get distracted. This is the number one reason we don't follow through. What is that? When I say, when someone says, I don't feel like it, you know what I'm going to say? It's an internal trigger. It's an uncomfortable emotional state. It's emotional discomfort that I don't know how to deal with in a healthy manner. That is the number one reason that we don't follow through. I don't feel like it. But if we knew how to manage our emotions, and this is something that I talk about, I give over a dozen different techniques that we can use to help us overcome these uncomfortable in, in, emotional states, we can follow through. Because most people, they say, when I don't feel like it, it's uncomfortable, I quit. Or I distract myself, right, with something else. That's what they typically do, as opposed to doing what they said they're going to do. So that's back to these internal triggers. Now, we don't stop there. We have hacking back the external triggers where we know that these pings, dings, and rings, these things in our outside environment can lead us off track. Hey, if you got distracted one time because your phone buzzed or beeped or booped uh, while you were with someone you loved, okay, shoot, it happened once. But does it happen a second time, a third time, a fourth time? How many times can we complain about these technology companies addicting us and hijacking our brain when we haven't taken five minutes to turn off those goddamn notification settings already? We can do something about this. Use some forethought here to do something today to prevent it distracting us for tomorrow. But sometimes even that's not good enough. So the fourth and final step to becoming indistractable is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are an ancient technique. They're at least 2,500 years old. And we know this because they appear in the story of the Odyssey written by Homer. Now, in the Odyssey, there's this Greek hero, Ulysses, who has to sail his ship past the island of the sirens. And the sirens are these mythical creatures that sing this magical song. And any sailor who hears the siren song crashes his ship onto the shore of the sirens island. Now, Ulysses knows that this might happen. He knows he might get tempted into distraction. So what does he do? He uses forethought. He tells his crew to put beeswax in their ears so they cannot hear the siren song. And he makes a pact he tells them to bind him to the mast of the ship and tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, do not let me go. And this pre-commitment, this pact works. He's able to sail his ship right past the Sirens Island and return his crew and ship safely home. So we can use what we call Ulysses Pact in our own life to make sure as a last line of defense, as the firewall against distraction, that when all the other three steps fail. If they fail, this is the last line of defense. So if you say to yourself, no, you know what? Physical exercise every day in some shape or form is something that I must do. It is consistent with my values. I want it in my life. 
I am going to do it, make a pact. How can you make a pact? There's three types of pacts. We have effort pacts, price pacts, and identity pacts. An effort pact is when you put some bit of friction in between you and the distraction. So for example, my problem for years was that I would go online past my bedtime. I would say, oh, you know what? Proper rest is so important. Everybody knows we need to get enough sleep. But come 10 o'clock, I would just check one more email or I just need one more thing to do on social media. Let me just watch just a little bit more of that episode, 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock, and I still wouldn't start getting to bed. And it had an impact on my, on my mental well-being. I wasn't getting enough sleep. It had an impact on my sex life with my wife. We, weren't, we didn't have time to be intimate with each other. And so what did we do? We made an effort pact. How did I do that? I went to the hardware store and I bought us a $10 outlet timer. And this outlet timer turns anything you plug into it on or off at a certain time of day or night. So every night in my household, my internet router shuts off just like that. Now, what did that do? Could I turn my internet back on? Of course I could. I could go under my desk and I could fiddle with this, with this router thing. I could unplug it and replug it, but that takes effort. So by putting in a bit of friction in between something that I said I do not want to do, I'm making a pact. I'm making this effort pact to make it more difficult as a line of last defense. And of course, even though I know I could do it, it gives me that moment of pause to say, wait a minute, is this really important? Do I really need to check that email right now? Or is it more important to do what I said I was going to do, which is to get some rest and maybe snuggle with my wife? So that's an effort pact. Next comes a price pact. A price pact is when there's some kind of, of monetary disincentive to not doing what you said you were going to do. So let me give you my example here. And this pertains to the running example. For many years, as I mentioned, I used to be clinically obese. And so I never liked exercise. I hated exercise, in fact. And, and my friends would tell me, oh, I just ran a marathon and I got a runner's high. It was so great. I had no idea what they're talking about. Like exercise has always been, uh, just recently have I been able to tolerate it. But for most of my life, I absolutely hated physical exercise, but I knew that was part of my values. I want to be the kind of person who takes care of their body and taking care of your body also entails some degree of physical exercise. So I read this amazing research around how people use pre-commitments and price packs. It has been shown to be the number one most effective smoking cessation study in history this using a price pact. And so I, I morphed the study components into something that served me in my life to help me exercise. What did I do? I got myself a calendar that hangs inside uh, my closet and I can see it every morning. Now, when I see that calendar, what I see is today's date. And then I see onto today's date taped a crisp $100 bill. And above the calendar, there's a little shelf. And on that shelf is a Bic lighter. And I know that every day I have a choice to make. This is called the burn or burn method. The burn or burn method says that I can either burn some calories, go for a jog, do some push-ups, walk around the block, do something physical because that's part of my values. That's what I said I would do. Or I have to burn the money, like physically set it ablaze. That's a pre-commitment. That's a pact I made with myself. And I know people are saying, how could you do that? You can't burn the money. That's terrible. I could never do that. That's the point. I've never burned the money. I've done this for three years now and I've never burned the money. You know why? Because I do the thing I said I was going to do. <laughs> Even if I don't feel like it, I, you know what I really don't feel like doing? Burning a $100 bill. And so that, that pact, that pre-commitment I made with myself, and now I, of course, I tell everybody about it because that helps me hold me accountable, 
has allowed me to lose the weight. I'm in the best shape of my life at 42 years old. I've never been in this good of physical shape. Not because I do anything special. It's because I just do the thing I said I'm going to do day in and day out for years and years, right? Consistency is much more important than intensity. So that's a price pact. And then finally, the last type of pact is called an identity pact. And this comes out of the psychology of religion, that we know that when someone has an identity, a moniker they use to describe themselves, they become much more likely to follow through with their long-term goals without expending willpower. So for example, uh, a religious Muslim, an observant Jew does not say, oh, I wonder if I should have that bacon sandwich. No, because bacon is forbidden, right? Pork is forbidden in those religions. Uh, A vegetarian doesn't say, oh, I wonder if I should have a hamburger today. No, a vegetarian doesn't eat meat. It is who they are. It is part of their identity. And there is no reason, just like people might choose an identity based on their religious affiliation or because of an ethical concern like being a vegetarian, we can adopt all sorts of monikers that help us make an identity pact with ourselves. This is why the book is titled Indistractable. Because when you call yourself indistractable, and you don't even have to read the book to do this, when you call yourself indistractable, there are certain things that you do or will not do. You are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they are going to do. So the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things again and again, day in and day out. An indistractable person knows why they got distracted and they do something about it. So they utilize these four tactics of mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers and preventing distraction with packs. They say to themselves, okay, I got distracted once, it happens, but I'm not gonna get distracted by the same thing again. I'm gonna use these four techniques in concert that's how we become indistractable. Yeah, there's a couple of things you said that I want to pick up on, if that's okay. Um, sure. First of all, the concept of um, identity pact ties in with a- another chapter in the book, which is reimagine your temperament, or at least it does mm-hmm. to me, which is how you think about yourself. And the quote that came to my mind when I read that chapter was the quote attributed rightly or wrongly to Henry Ford, which is whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. And so there's a similar element of that. So one of the things that jumped out at me, like jumped screaming out at me, I don't know if, if someone has said this to you before or if it's been raised before or even if you knew it at the time, but um, there's a line in that chapter about temperament saying addicts beliefs regarding their powerlessness was just as significant in determining whether they would relapse after treatment as their level of physical dependence. Mm -hmm. Um, Has it been said to you before how that plays in with the first step of the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 steps routine? Tell me more. Well, the the first step uh, in um, Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I understand it, I should say this isn't actually from personal experience, although some would suggest it should be. But the first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And there's a really good book, the name of which escapes me. I don't know. Um, as a female author wrote this really good book about basically giving up drink. And what she said was she just she couldn't accept that first step that she was powerless against alcohol. She thought it was defeatist. She thought, and when I read your thing, I was like, that is not a good place to start if you're trying to get control over alcohol to say that you're powerless against it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that Alcoholics Anonymous works despite that, not because of it. I think what makes Alcoholics Anonymous really works is the sponsorship model. And in fact, by the way, the Alcoholics Anonymous success rate is about 12%. As much as we think it's the only way to go, it's certainly not. That there are many ways that people recover from the terrible disease of alcoholism. Alcoholics Anonymous is not the only way. And in fact, it's, it doesn't have the highest success rate out there at only 12% from what I understand. So I, what the studies find is that you're absolutely right to reiterate that it's the degree of powerlessness that you believe in terms of, I think maybe in the Alcoholics Anonymous context, it's a little bit different. It's not that we are powerless in our lives or that we're powerless to do anything. It's, it's that we're powerless with this disease itself. I yeah. think that's perhaps- well, Maybe, but I, I still think maybe even in terms of terminology, it sets you up to be in a weak position. I, I, that's just personally how it feels to me. But as I say, I, I don't, I, yeah. I don't want to get too bogged down in the Alcoholics Anonymous thing. It was just that powerlessness word uh, yeah. was important. And in terms of how you see yourself. Yeah. And that chapter is super important because it, as I talked about with identity packs, how they can help us, our identities can absolutely hurt us as well. And so I talk about the example of ego depletion is a big part of that chapter where I talk about how for many years, the psychology community believed that willpower was a depletable resource. We talked about, we call this ego depletion, that the more willpower you expend, it's like a muscle, right? Or like gas in a gas tank, that you spend it all up, that once it's gone. And many people still believe this and espouse this. I see it all the time in pop psychology articles, that willpower is like a gas in a gas tank. You, you're just out of it. And of course, many of us, even if we don't know the term ego depletion, we, we live this way. I used to live this way. I would come home from work. And I would say, wow, what a tough day today. I can't make any more decisions. I don't have any more willpower left. I'm, quote, spent. Yeah. And so that means that I deserve a pint of ice cream and I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. And it turns out that this whole idea of ego depletion was challenged by several psychologists. We do in the social sciences, what we do if a study sounds too good to be true, we run the study again. We see if it'll replicate. And it turns out it looks like ego depletion does not replicate. It's not real. Except in one group of people. That There was a study done by Carol Dweck, who's a fantastic researcher at Stanford. She wrote a wonderful book called Mindset. And she did this great study where she found that there is, in fact, one group of people who really do suffer from ego depletion. They really do act as if their willpower has run out like gas in a gas tank. And those people, and only those people, are people who believe that willpower is a depletable resource. If you believe you're spent, you will act accordingly. But the phenomenon doesn't really exist. It's only true if you believe it is. And so that's why I think it's so dangerous these days when people tell us that, oh, technology is addictive. It's hijacking your brain. There's nothing we can do. The algorithms are controlling our behavior. It is really dangerous because it leads to this sense of learned helplessness. It tells people exactly what the tech companies want them to believe. There's nothing you can do, so don't even try. And so that's what I'm fighting against. I want to empower people to understand it's not okay to have a lost generation here because we're going to wait for the politicians to fix this problem or the tech companies to fix this problem. They're not going to fix the problem. We have to do something about it right now. Why would we wait? And so that's why I'm on this mission to help people understand that we can do something about this problem right now for the sake of our own lives, for the sake of our children's lives. We need to become indistractable.
we're we're going to start running out of time, and I'm nowhere near running out of questions. So I'm, I'm going to just try and um, focus my own mind a little bit here. The one of the pact is about adding friction. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of speaking to Professor Wendy Wood, who wrote Good Habits, Bad Habits last week, mm-hmm. and I think it that is one of the most important uh, aspects of her research. That it's about whether you want to call it environmental design or whatever else it is, but it it, it is interrupting this uh, whether you want to call it a habit loop or whatever you want to call it. We haven't even got into really the hook model and hooked, and I don't think we're going to have time to. But this concept of making your bad habits harder, making your good habits easier. The same question I asked her, I'll ask you if that's okay, which is why do we rail against that? So I find that an uncomfortable truth that uh, I can't rely on my own willpower, that I can't rely on my motivation or my values if I'm not doing something about the triggers and I'm not changing my, whether it's environment or life or routine to avoid the triggers that are going to result in the habit. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. A great example of that is when I talk about the the burner burn technique. That here is a technique that lets you have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. That if I told you whatever goal you're not doing, your goal, right? Not somebody else's goal. Whatever your goal is, I'm going to write that novel. I'm going to uh, lose 20 pounds. I am going to whatever it is that you want to do in your life. If someone paid you enough money or someone threatened you deeply enough, right? They're going to put a gun to your head. You would most certainly do those things. And yet somehow it, we, we won't do this for ourselves even though we know we're capable. And that's why the burn or burn technique works if you do it. Because I really don't want to burn that $100 bill. But when I tell people, hey, look, I got into the best shape of my life. I didn't have to pay for liposuction. I kept my money because I never had to burn it. And I got it all, right? I did what I wanted and I kept my money because I followed through. So there was no cost. I didn't have to sign up for Weight Watchers. I didn't have to go do all this stuff. I I simply did what I said I was going to do under this pact that I made with myself, with this pre-commitment. And it's amazing how many people say, I would never do that. (laughs) Hang on, can I ask a question here? When you say they say, I would never do that, which part are they saying they would never do? That's exactly the point, the actually doing part. Because as soon as you make it so concrete of, wait a minute, if I did actually have a pact with myself, if I really did have a price that would be that I would have to pay for not doing the thing that I myself said I want to do, what's really going on is people are realizing, I'm going to do the hard work. Shoot. Well, well, <laughs> no. Now, again, this could just be me. And I'm curious to know, again, if this has come up in conversation. You mentioned this as well in terms of getting this book finished and um, that you said you, if you didn't get it done in time, you would pay your friend $10,000. Yeah. Right. Now, in both circumstances, the $100 bill uh, on the wall or the 10,000 um, euro, my pre-commitment would have to go further to be effective. This is just personal now. Because I wouldn't burn the note. Like, let's say I didn't do the exercise. I wouldn't burn it. So I would have to give it to someone and say, you have to burn that if I don't Mm. do the exercise. Uh, Or in your friend's example, I would have to pre-transfer the 10,000 to him and say, 
uh, if I don't get it in, don't give it back to me because I don't think if I, I, I would give it to him. Do, do you follow my, what I'm getting at? Sure. Yeah. And the, the most important thing here is the principle not the execution, right? So if you understand how these packs work, you can tailor them and adjust them to any way that works for you. The point is it has to hurt in order to become a pact. Now, it's incredibly important. I want to emphasize this, double underline, asterisk this. This is what you do last, okay? The reason that the fourth step is to prevent distraction with packs is that if you do it in the wrong order, it will backfire. If you listen to this podcast and you say, oh, great, now I know how I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to promise somebody that I'm going to you know, pay them if I don't but you haven't mastered the internal triggers, you haven't made time for traction, you haven't hacked back the external trigger, you will fail. It will not work. You have to do the other things first. This is only the last line of defense. This is the firewall against distraction. Yeah. It's, it's, I, what I'm, I wonder, I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast so far who, who probably have never, sorry, when I say probably have never read your book, I know they haven't because I asked them, um, these are people who, for example, Georgie Crawford, who is a cancer survivor uh, and a kind of health and well-being um, ambassador in Ireland now. And I asked, she has developed a whole load of healthy habits out of having cancer and surviving it and to get herself to a certain place in her life where she is now. And she did that without reading any of these books or without knowing stuff. So there's a level of, I won't say common sense, but like some people will have done some of the stuff in the book already for example i'd done Mm -hmm. a lot of the hacking back before i read the book i'd done certain bits and pieces of it but i guess i feel like it's a bit of a jigsaw and so you i'm sure like me and like you before you did the research and wrote the book you're missing pieces yeah yeah so the the biggest contribution i think i can make to a reader's life is the mental picture and it's hard to describe over a podcast through audio but the arrow to the right that's traction, the arrow to the left, that is distraction, and then the two influencers of our actions, internal triggers and external triggers. If you understand these four parts, this is the basis. This is how we prevent distraction with forethought. We understand these four parts of the hook model and we follow our, I'm sorry, of the indistractable model, and we follow our way around these four points by mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs. And believe it or not, that actually was the most time-consuming part of the book (laughs) because of a few reasons. One, validating what really works and what really should be in the book, the stuff that's really backed by decades-old science. And the reason some of these techniques, for example, I'll be honest with you, you removing uh, notifications from your phone because they keep pinging and dinging you to check Facebook, this is kindergarten stuff. Seriously, how can we complain that technology is, is distracting us and addicting us if we haven't even taken five minutes to change our notification settings? You don't need to buy a whole book to tell you. That's common sense. I totally agree. And some of these techniques are out there because they really do work. So implementation intentions, making a calendar, time boxing, they've been out there. What people don't realize is how much of the common wisdom is flat out wrong or harmful. So the book is full of me overturning apple carts. Not many people know willpower is not a depletable resource unless you believe it is. Not many people know that keeping a to-do list, running your life off that to-do list 
is destroying your productivity. Not many people know that labeling yourself as having short attention span or whatever other labels can harm you and keep you from attaining your goals. So as much as there's common sense out there, much of the common sense turns out to be flat out wrong and, and harmful to folks. It, it's like the whole thing is just so fascinating that it, 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 as I've said a couple of times in this podcast, one of the things that I'm delighted I've discovered it now, but disappointed I've only discovered it now. If you follow me, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm late to the party and I'm chasing my tail catching up. Um, two very, I'm, I'm going to try and respect your time as much as I can. With everyone else, I go over time and just wing it, but I'm conscious <laughs> that there'll be another time block, so I won't. Two very quick questions, one of which sure. is just a quirky observation, perhaps nothing more, but... I just did the maths and the average chapter in your book is 5.2 pages long, which is very short. And I'm just right. wondering, is that by design because we're distractible that you wanted to make it a chunkable bite size that you get through chapters, you feel like you're making progress or? Absolutely. You nailed it. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just a, it's something that I spotted. Uh, and then I guess the final, final two questions one for you, which is what's next? So you said it took five years research to do Indistractable. If that was released in 2019, probably finished or over to the editors in 2018. Are you two years into researching the next one or are you taking some time out or what's happening? I don't really know what the next thing. I have, I have many projects that I'm interested in exploring deeper. There's been so much interest in Distractable and so many things have happened since I wrote the book. I wrote the book in late 2019 before Corona, before this crazy political year. And now the world has become so much more distracting than I thought. I thought the world was distracting back before 2020. And now with everything that's happened in 2020, it's only become more distracting. And so there's been a confluence of a greater need for this material. And also, I think, again, a lot of misinformation out there. Primarily what I'm fighting against is this misinformation around this hopelessness, this, this idea that it's addicting everyone. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm really fighting that. So that's the mission I'm on right now is to empower people to do something about this problem rather than just giving into this victimization culture that I think pervades this this problem right now. So that's really what I'm working on. I don't I wish I could tell you I know what the next project is, but for right now I'm so interested and engaged with fighting this battle right now that I'm pretty happy to continue on this path. So I'll see. Maybe someday I'll start working on another book, but right now the way I write books I don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a book. I, I blog about it. So right now I blog every two weeks. I write something on my blog. I write on Medium every week. And so I just crank out interesting thoughts that occupy my brain and the interesting research I come across at nearandfar.com. And eventually that'll probably turn into uh, a path that I can follow for an, a, another book, hopefully. Listen, Nir, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy talking to you. I've learned so much and I hope everyone listening has too. Have a great day. I did go a minute over, so I apologize for that. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And hey, look, if you really enjoyed that interview, uh, or even if you just sort of enjoyed it, you don't have to really have enjoyed it, uh, it would be great if you would leave a comment or a like on um, your podcast uh, what would you call it podcast host of choice uh, whether that's itunes or stitcher or google podcasts uh, all the positive reviews add up uh, and they help uh, spread the word so that the algorithms controlling all these uh, let other people know about them so if you would do that that would be awesome uh, you can subscribe to the podcast obviously uh, and next week we're going to be talking to uh dr pete lunn from the uh 
ESRI. He's a behavioral economist uh, and psychologist, uh, and he's going to tell us why um, we can't stop ourselves from spreading coronavirus. Stupid people. That's next week's episode. Subscribe now and find out more at thehabitshabit.com.